How far will they go? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state and the last edition of the year. Jeremy, are you ready? Oh, it feels like a celebration. It's like New Year's Eve come early. Absolutely. That's Jeremy Wallace, and I'm Scott Braddock. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com down in San Antonio. Let's start the last edition of the year with the latest abortion controversy, which, of course, has now swept the nation, and you can bet your bottom dollar it came right out of Texas. Stand for Kate Cox. Stand for women's rights. Stand for Kate Cox. Stand for women's rights. Jeremy, you have heard by now of Kate Cox. She is from Dallas, and uh, this woman who was seeking an abortion, this is where the language around it really matters. She doesn't want an abortion. If you listen to what she says, and you'll hear from her in just a bit, she doesn't want an abortion. She wants a baby. Now, how many times have we tried to tell people that when it comes to these restrictions on abortions that have no real uh, legit exceptions, or at least exceptions that people can figure out, that often the people who are impacted by it are those who want to have a baby, want to have a family. This woman uh, already has children. I think she has two. And in her latest pregnancy, she's at about 20 weeks now. I guess she's at 21 weeks now. This uh, latest story that I'm looking at was written about a week ago. In fact, it was from the day after we did our last show. We did our last show on Thursday. And then by Friday, this controversy had once again picked up again. In her latest pregnancy, the fetus has a genetic condition with what is described as slim to no chance of survival. So this is what we call a fetal abnormality. Now, this is the kind of thing that gets misrepresented all over the place. As I have watched various pieces of uh, pro-life or anti-choice, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, abortion restriction legislation, as it goes through the process, there are those who will make the argument that kids with Down syndrome, for example, have fetal abnormalities. That's not what we're talking about. When you're talking about a fetal abnormality, you're talking about the kind of thing that happens to the fetus that, that it means it's not going to survive. And that's what's happening with Kate Cox. She told NBC News that there's no positive outcome for this whole deal as she tries to get permission from the courts to go ahead with what is a medically necessary abortion. We're going through the loss of a, of a child. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl, you know? So um, it's hard, you know, just, uh, you know, grief. But um, I think that, um, you know, joy and grief can coexist. And there's, you know, more, there's moments of joy. I said, I'm really grateful for my wonderful two children that I have and my wonderful family. And, um, you know, it's a moment of sadness, but we really have a wonderful life here in our, in our home state. And so, you know, I just try to count my blessings. Here's the court action on this. There was a judge in Travis County, Jeremy, that said she could go ahead and have the abortion that, uh, that what we're talking about qualifies as a uh, medical exception. We're talking about life of the mother, uh, as well as the ability to uh, have her future bodily functions be normal. That's the that's, that's sort of the, uh, the layman's version of, of what's in the law. Now, you know that after that, the Texas Supreme Court said that the lower court was wrong, that she can't have the abortion. And then in the meantime, uh, there was a report that uh, Ms. Cox left the state 
to go have an abortion. And I think as we record here uh, on Friday, we don't have clarity about whether she did have the abortion. Now, her attorney, uh, this guy, Austin Kaplan, spoke with KXAN News and our friend uh, Ryan Chandler over there. And uh, Kaplan said that um, this is all very emotional uh, when you're talking about what's going on with Cox and some of his uh, other clients as well. So many of our plaintiffs desperately want to have a baby. And sometimes, unfortunately, you just get a terrible diagnosis. And the best way to have a baby is to have an abortion, medically appropriate, doctor-approved abortion, Mm -hmm. and then try again so that you can bring life into this world. I think that's what so many of our folks are trying to do here. And so, you know, I would ask the folks that disagree to pray for those families and pray for, for their successful outcomes. As these pieces of legislation were making their way through the legislative process uh, two years ago, Jeremy, we were on the show talking about it for months before the nation sort of woke up about it. You remember with Senate Bill 8, which is different from what we're talking about here, although it could still apply if this woman goes and has an abortion somewhere else, then everybody in the world can just sue her over it because that's what Senate Senate Bill 8 um, um that's what it uh, empowers, really, is, is for civil lawsuits to be filed against providers and anyone who assists a woman who is seeking an abortion. Uh, those people can all be hit with uh, civil lawsuits uh, where the awards can be up to $10,000. But you remember, that was being debated in the legislature. Almost nobody noticed except for those of us here in Texas. And then months later, when the Supreme Court declined to uh, step in and block that law as it was set to go into effect. Oh, wow. From New York to Los Angeles, everywhere in between, Jeremy, people started to ask the question, what is going on down in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, 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 the, and that conversation about exceptions, like it's not a small conversation as we now are watching play out, not just in Texas, but nationally and internationally, people are covering this issue. Like everybody knows Kate's name right now because this is like it, it, the, the lack of exceptions and the harshness of Texas's law compared to even mm-hmm. other Republican states is much harsher and much stricter than any place else. Yeah. Well, let's get to uh, the way that it's impacting the presidential race in just a little bit. But uh, first, former Senator Wendy Davis, who, of course, ran for governor largely on the issue of abortion back in 2014. She told MSNBC this week that she's hearing from more and more women who are afraid to even become pregnant in Texas. More and more, we are hearing that women are afraid to become pregnant in our state. Mm -hmm. Uh, More and more, we're hearing that people don't want to relocate to our state. We are losing OB-GYN doctors who are leaving our state. We have fewer and fewer people who want to get their OB-GYN residencies here in Texas. And so not only is it creating a crisis for women who are seeking abortion care for a variety of reasons, but it's also a crisis for people who are seeking healthy pregnancy care and for whom so many, the only medical care they ever get is from their OB-GYN visit where cancers are discovered, cancers are discovered and so many other healthcare issues that now they are going to face the climate of what it means to have a dearth of these doctors in our state because the state has created such a tremendously difficult climate for them here. So you're hearing from Democrats, you're hearing from liberals, you're hearing from those who are directly involved in the case. 
You know who you haven't heard that much from, at least if they can avoid it, is conservative Republicans. Now, when they are asked about it, they have to come up with something, right, Jeremy? But um, for example, Senator Ted Cruz wasn't able to come up with anything. When he was approached uh, about this by a reporter on Capitol Hill, um, he basically said, hey, you can call my press office about that. I'm not really interested in talking. He, he didn't even say I'm not interested in talking about it. He says, call my press office, call my press office and and they can deal with it. This is uh, reporter Garrett Haig with NBC News. He's trying to track down Cruz and ask him to talk about this case uh, that has become basically the talk of Texas and the talk of the nation. Senator, what's your view on the Kate Cox case in Texas? Just call a press office. We've done that several times, Senator. It seems weird that you won't comment on it at all. You have absolutely nothing to say about this case? Sorry. Most people in Texas are talking about it every day. Do you believe the law is being enforced as it's supposed to be? You could hear at the end there the elevator uh, that Cruz was jumping on to, I won't say to get away from the reporter, but, but Jeremy, you have reported at Capitol Hill and hopping on the elevator or getting on the tram. <laughs> A lot of times that's the way you get away from uh, the tough questions there. Well, and, and, and the thing is, like, Cruz is usually one of those guys who would stop and does talk to you mm -hmm. as you're walking along. The, the best access you have in Capitol Hill, one of the reasons to be a reporter there, is you do get to talk to people, like, when they're coming off of votes, you know, or they're headed to a meeting or whatever. And so that's when, like, you'll just be walking down the hall and there's John McCain or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. And Cruz typically... It's pretty yeah. talkative, but mm -hmm. you could hear in this clip, it was like, nope, I'm out of here. See y'all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Senator Cornyn was also asked about it and here's his quote. And usually he's somebody who will at least weigh in Jeremy, even if it's not something that he necessarily wants to talk about. Senator Cornyn said, quote, I'm not a state official. What he, uh, let me pause the quote for a second. What he means by that is he's not a state level official. Yeah. He is a government official, right? But, okay, let me, let me go back to it. He says, quote, I'm not a state official, so I'm not going to comment on what state officials are doing. I'm happy to comment on anything that I'm responsible for, close quote. Now, here you have Cornyn, who is the elder, as my estimation, is the elder statesman of the Texas Republican Party. And this is a policy that has been pursued hammer and tong by the Republican Party of Texas and those office holders uh, who are in that party in state government. Um, I mentioned earlier that with Senate Bill 8, you had um, sort of the nation wake up about what's happening in Texas when it comes to abortion laws. Um, and I remember that as that bill was making its way through the legislature, along with this all-out ban on abortion uh, in Texas, which took effect after the Roe versus Wade decision was overturned uh, by the Supreme Court, I remember that, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again here. And this seemed to be, there's, there's nuance to it. For some of them, it was the most cowardly thing they could be saying privately. Some Republicans who would just tell you privately that they were going to vote for these restrictions with the understanding that the courts would never let them do this. There were a lot of Republicans who felt that because of the pressure they get from their right in their primaries, that they have to take these, quote, pro-life votes no matter how far the bill goes. If there are no real exceptions, if it uh, you know forces some women to actually leave Texas to get the care that they need, that that doesn't matter. That, that look, in their primaries, they don't want to be seen as weak when it comes to an anti-abortion stance, but they were doing it sort of with the understanding that there will really not be a real-world consequence for it because the courts, quote, won't let us do this, close quote. And I heard that from one Republican after another. Now, the nuance on that is 
But there are some Republicans who would tell you that, and they would say this, some, some would say this privately and publicly. They would say, look, I do agree with a strict anti-abortion stance, but I also understand that the courts might not let us do it. And that, I would say, that's not the cowardly position that some of them were in. That's them taking a stand that, that you know, they believe that they're going to be, you know, struck down by the courts. Uh, and I get that's a different way to think about it. But there were so many of them, Jeremy, who I think they were kind of breathing a sigh of relief that the courts were going to bail them out on this. And then when the courts didn't, then they thought, oh, wow, maybe we have. And then after that, uh, you know, court decision, then I heard some Republicans saying privately, have we gone too far with this? Are we getting to a place where there is going to be some backlash um, uh, for us politically? It ha- in fairness, it hasn't happened yet, right? In, te- in Texas, we have not seen that happen in any way, shape, or form. While all these folks make all this noise about how you know Texas has gone too far when it comes to abortion, there's been no electoral consequence for Republicans because of it. If anything, they've been rewarded for passing these things. Yeah, and, and they benefit from what we don't know. And what I mean by that is we know who Kate Cox is right now, Uh, but there are other women who are in the same situation that she is in who have quietly got on airplanes with no attention to do this. Uh, This is like you think about the women who have been raped and became pregnant like that has happened in the state since that abortion law went into place. Of course. And they've had to do something about it. Right. Because this state will not. That's one of the exceptions that we do not allow in the state of Texas. Rape is not an exception, which is really one of the most extreme positions, again, around the nation. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of women who are having to do this now. And I think maybe the the thing that Kate Cox is kind of helping shed light on is that it's not just her. It is much more widespread and it's much more difficult out there for a lot of families right now, including those who want to have children, who have families. She clearly is a mother and she wants to continue to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And the state is actually putting that in jeopardy unless she goes out of state. So that part is is one piece of it. And then you look at the other piece to this thing. When, you know, when I'm listening to presidential candidates you yeah. know, talk about this issue, you'll see like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are both, they're not quite saying Texas is wrong in what they're mm-hmm. doing, but, they, but they're saying, oh, we need to show compassion, you know, more yeah. compassion for women out there. And I think they're you know, again, neither one of them is saying they would overturn what Texas did, so they're definitely stopping short of it. But you can see that even people from states like South Carolina and Florida are looking at us, and the word compassion is the first thing that's coming to their mind. And it's funny because, like, you can see them almost struggle. You saw, you know, Ted Cruz doesn't want to talk about a lot of Republicans yeah, right. don't want to mm-hmm. get in that. Well, here, you know, you know, I know, you know Chris Christie probably has as much of a chance of becoming the next president in the United States as I do at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but, Don't count yourself out. <laughs> there you go. I still might pass him up in, in New yeah. Hampshire. But mm-hmm. but still, uh, like, you know, like he kind of says the answers that I think they all seemingly would have gone for in a normal in, you know, political environment, which is, yeah. I think that in this situation like this, you're not protecting any life because the child clearly has been diagnosed with having a fatal illness. So all you're doing is putting the life of the mother at risk by making her carry it to term. It's like, that seems like a pretty easy answer. 
You know, it's like, and he is like the only Republican who I'm seeing say, like, you can be pro-life and still think this is going too far when we're making like a 31-year-old woman having to make some ridiculous, you know, set of steps. She even went to the court saying, does this qualify as an exception? And while she got the one judge to agree, right. mm -hmm. the other, the, the Supreme Court said no. And even before that, what you didn't point out is that Ken Paxton put out a warning to the hospitals, like, oh, if you do oh, yeah. this, our other abortion law allows anybody in the nation to sue you for $1,000 a pop, mm -hmm. you know, because you gave an abortion to somebody they don't know. It's like, and so it, we have we have really gone, you know, to to appease a portion of the Republican Party. They have really made a lot of Republicans in the middle and independents go, "Wow, where have we gone?" You know, well, it's like this is when when Nikki Haley and you know, Ron DeSantis are like raising eyebrows to yeah. what we're doing. That kind of tells you we are not in the, you know, uh, the line Karov always have, like a center-right country. It's mm -hmm. Like, this is not a center-right policy. No. no. This is uh, a policy that people were running from, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s. And my publisher, Harvey Kronberg, has told this story publicly. So I'll mention it here. Um, when his uh, mother was pregnant in 1952... Um, she was at a Catholic hospital and the fetus was not going to survive. And Harvey's father, and they're a Jewish family, they were at a Catholic hospital. Harvey's father would not leave the side of his wife because he feared that if it came down to it, the Catholic nurses would let the mother die to try to save the baby, even though the baby wasn't going to be viable, right? There, there are those in society who think that no matter what, you always try to pick the baby over the mother. And that's where this goes, right? This goes back to that kind of stuff from the 1950s. Um, and I think that folks, you know, now who, you know, younger people, especially who never lived through any of that or have any remembrance of that or haven't heard stories about that, they don't know what it was like to have a woman be told, you have to have that anyway. It doesn't matter what. And by the way, we, we've come a long way as far as being able to tell what's going on with a pregnancy, you know, for, from the time of the 19. 50s and 60s, now they can pretty much tell you, you know, what's going to happen with that fetus, with that pregnancy, and whether or not, you know, terminating the pregnancy is the right thing to do, uh, or the or you could say right thing or wrong thing. This is the kind of thing, as Kate Cox talked about uh, earlier, uh, that you heard here in the show, that there's really not a happy ending, Yeah. no matter what. She doesn't get to take the baby home. That's not, she's not going to take a beautiful, healthy baby girl home. That's not going to happen. What she's talking about and what all those mothers that you're talking about would be uh, focused on is whether they could have a baby again in the future and whether the pregnancy they're having right now is going to prevent that unless certain steps are taken. And that's where I think to your point about this being, you know, uh, sort of a center right country or maybe just a, you know, a, a country that's somewhere in the center about about this issue, um, that the vast majority of people would say, let the woman and her doctor figure that out. And why is the state of Texas or any other government you know, jumping in and telling them what they have to do? Yeah, and again, and I get like the pro-life, you know, position on this. I understand it. Uh, and, you know, at least on a general standpoint, you know, like, 
you know, but it's, it's when you get to that exception part, when you get to the point where like, like a woman's ability to have children in the future could be affected. Like she will, she wants to have a child and it's like, she's the person being punished, Mm -hmm. you know, by this law that can't be what, you know, even folks on the pro-life movement who mean well want to happen. You know, it's like they, they're supposed to be, you know, obviously pro-life, you know, encouraging people to have children. You know, it's like, and in this case, this is is very discouraging, I think, for even people who might be in their camp typically, right? You know, so it's just, it's, and here's the thing, is how do you get, walk this back? I'm just not sure. Like you pointed out, if, if, if there were lawmakers hoping the courts would overturn, it didn't happen, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so now this is our law of the land. It's like, and I don't see how it changes. Like, who in the Texas legislature and the Republican Party is going to propose a bill to include <laughs> some exceptions to no. abortion? Who's going to do that? Who has the, the political power to not only put their own careers on the line, but then convince others to go with them? It's like, I just don't see how that ever happens. So once you cross this threshold, there isn't a clear way back. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. And we had heard uh, some rumblings that there might be some Republicans willing to do that ahead of the last regular session, because it would be the first session of the legislature after the overturning of the uh, Roe versus Wade decision. Uh, And there were a couple of Republicans who said they were open to, you know, creating more exceptions for, uh, for the ban that we have. But that, to your point, that just never happened. And to the larger politics of this, Jeremy, I think, and this is something that's very frustrating for folks when they get, um, you know, really focused on one issue. You know, there are some people who will consider themselves to be single issue voters or only a couple of issue voters. It might be abortion. It might be immigration. It might be guns. It might be whatever. Um, when you have seen votes on this, uh, on the issue in isolation by itself, even in some conservative places over the last year or two, you do see some progress for those who are on the pro-choice side, right? And we saw that um, in Kansas and some places that are surprising, like Kansas, Ohio. We saw that the pro-choice side was winning when it was something that was a question on the ballot about abortion specifically, right? But what tends to happen in an election is it's not just about the one issue. It's dynamic. It's about lots of issues. It's about abortion. It's about immigration. It's about uh, you know the economy. It's about jobs. It's about the candidates themselves. Um, and so when it's when it's uh, unfolding as part of a larger um, uh, campaign in a presidential race or in legislative races or whatever, um, it can sort of seem like it gets swept to the side, and all issues can kind of feel that way. Right, because people people will think, oh, this is the candidate who would do a better job on this or that, um, but they can't just run on one issue. They have to run on all the issues and appeal to voters about what they care about at that moment. Yeah, and and look at what this issue has done on the flip side, right? You know, it's like you know, if people who listen to the show heard me a couple of weeks ago with Kamala Harris, where she made this front and center the issue that they're going to run on you know to you know the, the idea that extreme policies like this on abortion are what they're fighting and so this is you know and you pointed out those other states where where republicans thought they had chances in places uh like virginia uh mm-hmm. and ohio uh but they found themselves losing ballot items or losing the legislature because of this issue, you know, this is a very powerful, this issue is a mobilizing vote for 
Democratic-based voters in a way that is probably akin to maybe the the border issue for Republicans. Mm -hmm. And that issue clearly had filed, fired up the right. But now what you know Biden and Democrats going into this election cycle have going with them is now this argument to be made that, look, you've got to vote for us if you want to get a judiciary that will stop things like this. Because the only thing that's going to stop this stuff is the judiciary. And yep. once you start packing the courts, whether the Supreme Court or the appeals courts or whatever, with nothing but Trump appointees, look what happens. Like this is literally like the result of the 2016 election. If the 2016 election goes the other way, none of this is happening right now. Mm -hmm. The Texas law is not in place. It has been, you know, deemed, you know, unconstitutional. Right. You know, because of the way the court would have been, you know, looking at that point. And so, you know, you can see this is such a powerful issue as we go. You know, this is not just a story about 2023. This issue is going to drive the political debate in 2024 for Democrats, particularly. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be that issue that they work on independent voters in those states like Wisconsin and Georgia, North Carolina, the places that are considered the swing states now. It's like this issue is going to be powerful. You mentioned immigration there, and uh, it's interesting that there might be some movement in Washington on this, although it's sort of like Lucy with the football when it, when it comes to immigration. It always seems like uh, something might happen, but then it never, ever, ever does. That's been the case since the 80s, by the way. On the, on the issue of immigration. Um, El Paso Congresswoman Veronica Escobar has come out with something she's calling the Dignity Act, and she'd like to go forward with something that we've talked about here on the show, Jeremy, which has to do with reforming not just uh, border security, because look, she gets it. She's from El Paso. She knows uh, that, uh, that there, and you'll hear from her in just a second about it, that there are real strains on local and state governments when it comes to immigration and how, how many crossings we have seen across the Rio Grande and all that. Uh, but she's also looking at reforming the nation's asylum laws, uh, which you might think, look, this could be something that Republicans and Democrats could work together on. Here she was speaking outside the U.S. Capitol about her uh, proposed law, again called the uh, Dignity Act. Our country needs immigrants. Our country thrives because of immigrants. I bet every one of my colleagues can tell you stories about CEOs and business owners and leaders of industry who come to us saying, we need workers, we need a workforce. Now, she was the county judge previously in El Paso County, and so she understands fully that those local governments have basically been filling in the gaps when the federal government doesn't act. I can tell you my community is tired. My local governments are tired of filling in for the federal government. My volunteers who volunteer at shelter networks throughout the community, they are exhausted. But what the Senate is talking about would be horrific. There is a better way. Compromise is possible. Compromise on bipartisan, comprehensive immigration reform is possible. She said bipartisan reform is possible. So let's hear from the Republican side on this, which seems um, a little different. It's a little different tone, Jeremy. You, you saw Chip Roy was on, what was this, on the Jesse Kelly show. He's one of these uh, right-wing guys who uh, is a big fan of Tucker Carlson. 
Yeah, and, and a really important point to kind of point out as we're kind of moving along on this is like, so Joe Biden's kind of opened the door saying he's willing to negotiate on immigration reform now with Republicans in order to unlock Ukraine financial aid. That is a really important kind of piece. All of a sudden, this discussion on immigration just went up like a few more notches as mm-hmm. Biden's looking to m- maybe make a deal to maybe placate some of these Republican critics. But yeah. You know, Chip Roy, he clearly has some thoughts. <laughs> well, he he continues to focus, it seems, solely on border security, but nothing about immigration. Correct. Right? And the, again, those are different, right? I mean, and it has always been, this has been the sticking point in Washington that there are those who, I think on this part of it, that there are those who rightly say you've got to do both at once because you can't have border security if people don't have a an immigration policy that fits the reality of today. And the, and the border policy and immigration policy we have now fits the reality of the 1980s, which guess what? If you were get, if you were guessing that that's nothing like now, well, ding, 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 you were right. <laughs> um, here's Chip Roy. He says, Republicans have got to use Ukraine funding as their leverage. There are thousands of people pouring across the border. And I've got Republicans on the floor coming up to me going, what's well, it? What can we do? We don't have the Senate. How can we do anything? I don't know. How about by sticking your middle finger up at the White House and saying, kiss my ass, we're not going to give you a dollar for Ukraine until you actually fully secure the border. So that's my message to Mike Johnson. That's my message to Senate Republicans. Do not blink HR2, secure the border, or Zelensky and Ukraine can pound sand. That's what the answer ought to be. Here's a style point for Congressman Roy. When he's mocking his fellow Republicans who don't know what to do, he should slow down a little bit because he talks real fast. He's always talking real fast. You know, when people talk real fast, they act like that's the way to be, you know, get over on the other side, you know, make all your points. And really, you just end up sounding like a jerk. But here's the thing. If he would slow it down, it would it would sound like they really don't know what they're doing. So he could slow down and go like this because you heard him mocking those other Republicans. They would, Oh, Chip. I don't know what to do. I That's the way he should do it. Is there anything or any way that we could get some kind of leverage here? And then he could jump back in with his fast talk and go, well, what we need to do is give him the middle finger and tell him to shove it up their ass and all this other stuff. Anyway, it's all about leveraging Ukraine funding, which I think, you know, Democrats started out hearing that from Republicans, Jeremy, as, as this is nonsense and these things shouldn't go together at all. But now it sure seems like, as you pointed out, Biden might be more open to that. Yeah, it's like this, and, and what a move. Yeah, this is really significant, I think. And it really speaks to, here we go, Wisconsin. <laughs> Get used to hearing a lot about Wisconsin because they are going to decide our next presidential race. And and why I mean is that, like, you know, you know, the fact that Biden is willing to negotiate with Chip Roy, who's talking about giving him the middle finger, right? And mm-hmm. at the in than irritating people like Veronica Escobar, who is literally working on the Biden campaign. Remember, she was given like an advisory role oh, with yeah. the mm-hmm. White House on the campaign. Uh, it's like so she kind of has a lot of say within the Biden world, right? And yet they're willing to risk her ire to try to placate Bi- uh, a, a guy like Chip Roy. Why right. would that be? Well, the reason is, look, the, the immigration issue is so deadly for Joe Biden right now in these swing states like Wisconsin. Up there, like even though it's a close race between Trump and Biden, 
on immigration, only 27% of people in a Marquette University poll up there said they you know, thought Biden was doing a good job on the border compared to Trump. 27%. Yeah. That is clearly an anchor. And so you can see the Biden people thinking, if we strike a deal with them and get some sort of border security, we blunt that issue for all of 2024, potentially. We might just give them enough where there's just not as much as they, they can do to go after us and maybe more importantly, go after those vulnerable U.S. senators who are trying to seek reelection in places like Montana and Ohio where they're in trouble. You know, they are both, you know, the, the two Democrats they need to come back to the Senate oh, could yeah. be gone if they can't figure this issue out. And so that's the gamble that, you know, the Republicans, if they do negotiate a deal with Biden, they might be hurting themselves, you know, by giving him enough on the border where maybe they take this at least blunt it. I'm not saying completely remove the issue, but it certainly changes the dynamics of the presidential race. It's funny because, you know, uh, Chip Roy earlier before that interview, y'all, y'all just heard that clip on. Yeah, he yeah. had been uh, he had been talking to Politico, and they asked him about this by negotiating with Biden. Are you potentially taking a, an, a, away an important issue? You know that that can be used against him. And and, and Chip ended up saying, "Look, I'm not even going to worry about this. The border is too important. You know, if that helps Biden politically, so be it." And so there's like kind of this realization that they kind of have to kind of come to terms with in the Republican side, they might be giving Biden a little bit too uh-huh. much in order yeah. to strike this deal so they themselves can come back with a victory. Look, Chip Roy will be happy. He'll be able to say, look, I forced the, you know, you know, Congress to do my right. thing and whatever, tough. and you mm-hmm. know, the border will be more secure. The end result, you know, is all that matters, right? You know, like, hey, there's more stuff going to the border. We'll finally well, slow the, the, the flow of migration or something, whatever they'll be able to say. Uh, so maybe he doesn't care about the global perspective, you know, of kind of how that affects the Biden universe as much. But it's just, it's really an interesting dynamic. And, it'll be, and that negotiation, that's going to hit us right in the face starting in January, like yeah. early January. January, like you're going to see this is going to really ramp up because they got to figure out that Ukraine funding like ASAP, right? You know, otherwise, you know, Vladimir Putin, you know, is going to get a huge victory. And I can guarantee you no Republican or Democrat wants that happening. Nobody wants, you know, Putin. You know, well, there smiling. are some Republicans. Well, I mean, yeah, there, maybe. there are some they're Republicans. Rare. <laughs> they're, they're rare. They don't, they're the loudest ones, but they don't represent the majority of Republicans. True. Right. These true. are the people who are, you know, following Tucker Carlson off the cliff. Well, I guess, you know, you could have um, Chip Roy basically come back and say, well, we gave him the middle finger and we told him to shove it up his ass and he shoved it. You know, and that, <laughs> yeah. that's, where he'll, where that's where he'll be on that thing. Sticking with the theme, Jeremy, I don't even know what we should talk about next. Should we maybe get into this Houston race, the Houston mayoral? For just a second, let me um, let me first say that I don't think anybody was surprised, at least anybody who follows this stuff, no one's surprised that John Whitmire is the mayor-elect there in H-Town. The, this was the most boring race, I can, and we didn't cover it a lot here on the show, and you know why? Because it was so boring. No, nothing was happening in this race. It was, it was uh, won by Whitmire based on resources and doing the mechanics of running one of these races, right? Now, I think you can say some things about the message that he had, but here's something I heard from people in Houston over and over. 
was, and this was even from some people who might have been open to voting for Sheila Jackson Lee, who was in the runoff with him, which was settled up last Saturday, right after we did the last show. A lot of people, Jeremy, in Houston told me that they don't even know why Sheila Jackson Lee was running for mayor. That they didn't understand, that she didn't have a message that was breaking through with voters about why she should be the mayor. Now, they all know who she is. She's a national figure. She's been in Congress for about 30 years. Um, she kind of has, as far as polling is concerned, she kind of had the issue that, that like a Hillary Clinton would have. Or at this point, like a Donald Trump would have, which is everyone knows who she is. And so you can't change perceptions about her for good or bad, right? That's one of the things going on. Well, this is the end of an era in the Texas legislature. Senator Whitmire has been either in the House or in the Senate since, what, 1973? Yeah. For 50 years. Um, now he won't be. So now we'll have a new dean of the Senate. That would be Judith Zaffarini. And um, Whitmire was asked by ABC 13 reporter Brooke Taylor at his victory party on Saturday um, about the kind of campaign that he ran and what's going to happen as soon as he gets into office. What do you have to say to your supporters who showed up with now, a lot of state? We ran a very positive campaign, and Houston is a great city. It's a special city, and we're demonstrating it tonight. Look at the beautiful diversity of exciting people. Houstonians coming together to make change. During our debate on ABC 13, you said that day one, if you are mayor, we will be able to see a change when it comes to public I, safety. Are you prepared that. for that? We will have a safer city on day one because we're going to bring all the departments together. We're going to send a message to violent offenders. We don't want you in Harris County. Nonviolent offenders will help you change your life. But this will be a safe city, a safer city on day one. Now, you might think that he's screaming because the music is playing and there's a crowd there. But, Jeremy, that's just always the way he talks. <laughs> John, John Whitmire had this tough-on-crime message, and I saw some of the national coverage of this. And, and there should be some because, as I said, Congresswoman Jackson Lee is a national figure. And so people in you know, Washington and New York, they kind of wanted, they kind of wanted to know how this was going to work out. Now, it looks like she's going to return to Congress. And both of them had a free pass for going back to where they had come from if they didn't win, right? I mean, Whitmire could just go right back to the Texas Senate if he hadn't won the mayor's race. Um, but the headlines in, I think in the New York Times and Washington Post, they said things like um, Sheila Jackson Lee, they focused on her because they know her. They said things like Sheila Jackson Lee loses to a moderate Democrat in the Houston mayor's race. Now I would say he's almost more of a conservative Democrat, um, but a couple of things about it. Number one, I said it's boring because they never really laid a hand on each other. As far as any big attacks, I didn't hear about any of that. You did see that um, that audio recording of Sheila Jackson Lee berating her employees. I don't think that that moved even one vote in the race. I think there have been plenty of stories about uh, the way she treats her employees over the year. No defense of it. I'm just telling you, people already knew about that. Um, when you look at where the votes came from in this, uh, there were three city council districts, basically, uh, where Whitmire just dominated and got all the votes, and this will tell you something about it, in the most diverse city in the United States, we always hear this, the whitest districts were the ones where the votes came from, right? All right, the areas around Montrose, the areas around River Oaks and the Galleria, and then down in Clear Lake. You know, when you think of Houston as being so diverse, those are not necessarily the neighborhoods you're thinking of. Now, there were a couple of things going on that drove turnout higher in those areas, for example, uh, Tony Busby, 
the big trial lawyer who had also defended Ken Paxton in his impeachment trial. Busby was running for city council in one of those council districts I mentioned. That would be Council District uh, G, which is River Oaks, over to the Galleria. And he was not successful in running for city council, but there was a runoff there, and so that helped to drive more turnout among the kind of voters that helped Whitmire. It was also revealed in the days after the election that Whitmire's campaign, that they knocked something like 180,000 doors in Houston. You know, they were really out there block walking. I heard about no similar effort from Sheila Jackson Lee. And in these local you know, elections, that's what you've got to do is get out there and actually talk one-on-one with voters. But I would guess that those doors are being knocked in those areas I mentioned. So in minority areas, I was hearing from people that they weren't seeing any block walkers almost out there in the city of Houston. Um, And one other thing I'd say about it, and I wonder what you think. This is a difference, a huge difference, a glaring difference. And, you know, there were a lot of sort of liberal or progressive Democrats who were trying to sound the alarm about how Whitmire is some kind of uh, closet Republican. I heard somebody say that he's going to be like an Eric Johnson for Houston. The Eric Johnson in Dallas, who was a Democratic member of the Texas House and recently switched parties from Democratic over to Republican. Uh, A lot of folks in Houston are saying he's not really a Democrat. Whitmire is really a a Republican, and he's in that that group with uh, Kim Ogg, who is the district attorney there, who's under fire from Democrats all the time. Um, And, you know, the county judge, Lena Hidalgo, hates Og and has not been happy with Whitmire either. Um, And that Whitmire, of course, has been somebody who has worked with Republican leadership in Austin. But this is a huge glaring difference between a city election and a county election. So in the the city election, and I'm here to tell you, I, I would put money on it. If John Whitmire, somebody who, you know, has been a Democratic office holder for 50 years in Texas, if John Whitmire had to run in a Democratic primary citywide in Houston, if that was a thing, he, he couldn't win it. He's too, quote, conservative. If he had to run in a primary where you're talking to just Democratic voters, right? That's why you see Kim Ogg under fire in her Democratic primary, right? Where you have the Democratic Party in Houston is coming out and condemning her for, you know, various things or her fights with uh, the county judge and all that. Someone like the county judge, Lena Hidalgo, who does run in a Democratic primary, is way more liberal than somebody like John Whitmire, right? If the two of them, put it this way, if if Lena Hidalgo and John Whitmire faced off in a Democratic primary countywide in Harris County, she would win, Right, because you're only talking to Democrats, but a city election is not like that. A city election is you got some of these moderate Democrats who are saying, yeah, we like Whitmire. He's the kind of guy that we can go for. But then a lot of Republicans who would vote in Houston, and the Republican vote in Houston is not insignificant, they would say, well, Whitmire's the kind of Democrat that we can deal with. What do you think? Yeah. No, absolutely. I think this matchup, you know, going into it, I I wondered which one of these, you know, candidates would have been able to, you know, activate their base. And and I know that goes to any race typically, but in both the case of Whitmire and of Sheila Jackson Lee, neither one of them have had a real campaign for decades. A long right? time. You know, right. Yeah. You know, so you could, you know, they haven't had to fight for a reelection uh, in a long time. And mm-hmm. so that told me like, okay, you have two candidates running who aren't used to 
this, what we were about to see. And so it was going to be a question of who could kind of like manage that and get over that and activate their their people to come out to vote. Right. Yeah. You know, even when uh-huh. their people are That's used to already coming out, how do you get even more out? Because mm-hmm. you really need to kind of expand that base of support. And so I think that's where, like, you know, uh, obviously Whitmire was able to do a better job of that than Sheila Jackson Lee, who just like this is where not having an opponent for decades really kind of hurt her. You know, she wasn't able to like mobilize like she should have had far better turnout in her congressional district and she should have destroyed you know, Whitmire in her congressional district. But mm-hmm. the Houston Chronicle, you know, we did an analysis of it, and that just didn't happen. Like, it, it was a close race, even in her congressional district, you know, makeup area. Right. It's like, and so it just, like, they weren't able to kind of seal the deal. You know, she was able to run as a candidate, but she wasn't doing the blocking and tackling that you have to do on the ground to get your base of support out to even be in the contest. And so I think that was kind of a big thing. And and, and, and one of the things going forwards, you know, starting new year that I'm really going to be interested to kind of see is how does Whitmire's relationship with, you know, people in the Texas legislature potentially change all of the anti- local government stuff that we've been seeing does it have any impact or bearing on those discussions is is he able to pick up the phone and talk to a guy like greg abbott Mm -hmm. uh a republican to to maybe you know look there's still going to be anti-houston you know legislation going on but can he can he help get it changed you know, with the relationships he has back in the Texas legislature. That will be interesting to see. Well, look, Sylvester Turner similarly had relationships with a lot of mm-hmm. people, particularly on the Republican side. He and Governor Greg Abbott, I was just at an event with them a few, uh, I would say four weeks ago, where they, they were clearly guys who get along personally, right? You know, it's like they can still communicate. It didn't work for Sylvester Turner. The question is, will Whitmire be able to kind of you know, provide a better defense for places like Houston, you know, in this environment where the Texas legislature, you know, their 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 go-to mode is to pound Houston at all costs, right? <laughs> to convince the Republicans there not to make Houston the butt of every single piece of legislation and or joke uh, would be a heck of an accomplishment if Whitmire can pull that off. Right. And well, it'll, it'll pull, it'll pull back the curtain on the fact that, you know, this whole assault on local government has not been about anything to do with some greater philosophy about how the state is, um, you know, supposed to reign supreme while the cities and counties are just, you know, subsets of the of the state, you know, you hear from those folks at uh, groups like the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where they always give you this whole rap about how, well, this is, you know, the government of the state should be able to preempt the local governments all the all the time because those are uh, subdivisions of the state that, that that they're subservient somehow. It'll pull back the curtain on that BS and just let you know that this is really all about Republicans versus Democrats. Right. This is this is really just about there's conservatives who are in in charge in Austin and they're in more and more progressive types, you know, in charge in the big cities in Texas. But that won't be true. Right. You got Maddie Parker is a Republican in Fort Worth. Now you have the Republican mayor in Dallas who just joined the GOP, Eric Johnson, who, again, that didn't shock me when he moved over to the Republican Party. As it was a lot of people. Oh, wow. I can't believe this. But 
if you've been paying attention to Eric Johnson, you shouldn't have been shocked that suddenly he's a Republican. And now you have Whitmire, who has been described as Dan Patrick's Democrat in the Senate. Yeah, that, that's a rough terminology, right? I, you know, I know he would probably definitely. He would not like that. me saying that. I don't care. No. What he, he would not like me saying that. But yeah. I'm not. I'm not the one saying it. A lot of Democrats have said that about him. Well, well, and and, and look at who we have as mayors. Like you just pointed out, it's like so. You know, in 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 Dallas, you have a Democrat turned Republican. Mm-hmm. You know, running there. Look at you know in San Antonio, you have Mayor Nuremberg, who right. is a Democrat, but was you know really held on to that independent label as po- long as he possibly could, and mm-hmm. really has kind of like you know honed in on that. You have uh, a guy like Whitmire, who mm-hmm. you know obviously skews a little bit to the right within the Democratic ranks. So you you see something happening you know, like it we're definitely still a republican state but you yeah. see in the in the cities you better have some democratic credentials and credibility if you want to lead these cities it just kind of speaks to that you know that blue spine stuff i've been talking about for years where it's just like you just have to have like you know this is a state that is diverse in that yeah it's a republican state but there are democratic leaders it, or at least leaders with democratic bones in yeah. all of our cities and counties still. Even the mayor of you know, the liberal bastion of Austin, Kirk Watson. Well, he's not the mayor that they had last, right? He's right. A, a little closer. I mean, I'm not going to say he's not progressive or whatever, but, you know, he's not Steve Adler. You know, yeah. Kirk Watson, and, and like Whitmire, is, you know, a product of the Texas Senate. Having served there, of course, uh, Watson was the mayor previously, then came back and was a Texas senator for for years. But it also brings up this interesting um, information. The state Senate is down to, with Whitmire leaving to be mayor in Houston, it's down to one white male Democrat. That would be Nathan Johnson, senator from Dallas. And if he is defeated in his primary... And, who, you know, who, who knows how this is going to go. This will be one to watch, and we won't get into the whole thing today. This is uh, this is causing some consternation in Dallas County. <laughs> He's got um, the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus Chair, Victoria Niave Criado, who is challenging Senator Johnson in his primary. I saw this week that they were trading barbs already about who has the better polling. And, of course, they want to put out poll information without putting out the polls. Um, Senator Johnson's campaign put out an email, Jeremy, that said, when you ask the, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, when you ask the right questions, he has a 22 point lead in the primary over the chairwoman. And then she put out a poll and it's, she's got her own polling information. Now she put, she was a little more transparent about the poll numbers. She put out the whole polling memo, but I'm not going to put a whole lot of stock in a, in a poll, you know, that that's out before January of the. Yeah, of this correct. primary, right? Um, but she said that she was leading. These can't both be right. He said that she was uh, trailing him by 22 points. And she put out a poll that said she leads him by four points. <laughs> okay. All right. So it, that one will get ugly, including, mm, I'm thinking about what I know about these candidates. I'll leave that out for now. That 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 race will get ugly. But it is interesting that if Johnson is defeated, that he will... Uh, have been the last white male Democrat in the Senate. We'll see who uh, who replaces Whitmire in Houston. Um, but who knows? I mean, these districts and the way they vote, Jeremy, and the 
the demographic um, breakdowns of the district, it doesn't match the way they vote at all. So in Dallas, I'll give you this info. In Dallas, Senate District 16, that's where Johnson and Naavi Kriata were facing off. Um, it's it's uh, Demographics are this. It's uh, 45% Hispanic, 30% Anglo, and 20% African American. But listen to this. This is how it votes. In the last cycle, the people who actually went to the ballot box, 60% Anglo, 25% African American, and 15% Hispanic. Now, similar thing happens in Whitmire's district, which is if, if you just look at the population, the demographics are 42% Hispanic, 29% Anglo, 21% Black, and 8% Asian. But here's how that district votes. I had, had all these numbers pulled in the last few days. 51% Anglo. See, it flips, right? It's the people who are voting are white. 51% Anglo, 30% African American, 13% Hispanic, and then other goes under uh, about 4%. And in that district, I have the gender breakdown. It's about 60-40 um, in favor of women, by the way. That's in the Whitmire district right now. It's a 59.72% women, 40% male. Um, so you may be coming to another end of an era in which, for the first time since Texas has been a state, I think it's possible that you won't have a white male Democrat in the Senate, that that's over with. And that um, I have heard the sentiment, and this was more prominent in Dallas County, but I've heard a little bit of it in Houston. In Dallas County, there is the sentiment that white male Democrats are not safe. The people were asking, why is a House member um, who's in good position in the House challenging a state senator who, look, that's a, unseating a senator is a tough deal, right? He'll have a million dollars in the bank, I'm sure, on the next report, and we'll see what she has. She hasn't had, she hasn't been a prolific fundraiser uh, at all, but she might be able to get some money from, uh, uh, from national groups, for example, who might be more interested in seeing minority representation and, uh, you know, a woman in that seat instead. It was interesting, Jeremy, that the first messages from, uh, from Niavi Criado didn't have to do with immigration, although she'll get into that and she has got into it a little bit. It's what we started out talking about. It's about abortion and about appealing to female voters. And, you know, more and more, that's where the energy is in the Democratic Party. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and all these numbers show you like just kind of what's happened over these last really these last six years with voter registration. Right. You know, the focus of groups that have gone into places like, you know, Harris County and the Bear County and, you know, even further south in Cameron County, like the focus has been trying to get people of color registered to vote. Uh, and that, you know, because ultimately that's going to be what like, you know, in a democratic world, that's that's the only way the state ever has a shot of turning blue is if they get more people who are diverse registering to vote and yep. then appealing to them. That's the only way this state ever at, at its current makeup. It doesn't happen. Right. You know, but you see you know, just look at what's happened in Harris County. I keep bringing this up to people. It's just like it was just 2014 that we were watching Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz. Well, it wasn't that year, but uh, uh, Dan Patrick, Ken Paxton all win places like Harris County and Bear County. Now, none of them have a shot in either one of those. And the reason is we've gotten an electorate 
that started, you know, signing up to vote, a, a more diverse electorate signing up to vote, you know, and, and that is what's, you know, at the core affecting all this. So it's really kind of interesting to see how, you know, you know, it, it takes a while for that that to, to work itself out, right? What you're seeing in term, in the terms of the voter participation, that number from minority populations will continue to grow For as sure. the habits of voting, you know, and b- making it more of a of an importance, you know, start happening. It just, you know, it's great. I love to tell people, like, you know, really, when you think, you know, John Whitmire is a great example. You know, think of a guy, you know, like his political career starts in 1972. Mm-hmm. The Voting Rights Act in America was barely, you know, on the books. And you can ask anybody who uh, was his, uh, any Hispanic who was around Texas at that time that it was still very much discouraged, you know, w- you know, them signing up to vote and trying to go vote. Mm-hmm. Guys like Henry B. Gonzalez were such an oddity in Texas politics because there just weren't many Hispanics who were, you know, essentially still, you know, weren't even allowed to vote really in a lot of ways. And right. so just to see where we have come, you know, to just now we're finally getting that participation rate, you know, starting to move in the right direction. If you pulled those same numbers, you know, from 10 years ago, I can guarantee you they would have been less. You know, it's like those numbers are just growing and growing and growing as as I think everybody in the state, no matter what your skin color is starting mm-hmm. to realize, look, it's all of our state. It's not just the state of the white men. <laughs> you know, it's like women, you know, figured out that, wait, we can have an Im- Im- impact here, too. And mm-hmm. I think people from other more diverse communities, people in the east end of Houston are starting to get it on the south side of San Antonio are getting it. People are understanding, wait, wait, if enough of us vote. We can actually do something here, you know, and I think we've started to kind of see at, at least within those cities, in those counties, we're seeing that change happen. You know, it's like those places have changed over. Uh, you know, John Cornyn won Bear County and then the next election cycle lost it. You know, it's like you can see that, like, there is an impact. Whether or not that turns the state blue, obviously, is a much bigger debate, you know, down the road. But definitely, we now have cities that are as blue as other big American U.S. cities when that had not been the case for decades. Well, and it's a continuing uh, urbanization of the state. There was a time when, you know, the population was a little bit more spread out, but it's just not the case anymore where you have the vast majority of people who live in Texas live to the east of the I-35, you know, to the I-35 corridor and east, right, Um, along that blue spine that you talked about. Um, and it's just a rapidly changing place. And, and of course, Republicans understand on some level that they have to do things differently if they want to hold on to power. We'll just see how that, uh, you know, how that plays out. So I think a lot of people, Jeremy, were very happy about the fact that we were ending on positive vibes last week when we did the show. You know, I have mentioned that it can't all be doom and gloom and, you know, fire and brimstone around here. Because there's plenty of bad, let me say this as we wrap up the year, there's plenty of bad shit to tell you all about. <laughs> and we do it all the time, right? And um, when we were talking to, an edu- you and I spoke to an education group, uh, basically did a live acoustic version of the show. It was, a, it was like uh, the unplugged version, Evan. We did like an <laughs> unplugged version of the show um, for the mid-sized schools and the, 
rural school districts last week in, in Round Rock. And it was, uh, it was one of our, our listeners who was there at the event who said, Scott, I can always tell if you're in a bad mood, it's going to be a great show. Well, that tells me something about myself, which is that, that, number one, that's true. But number two, I shouldn't be in a bad mood all the time. I should shift it up, change it up. So we can put positive things in the news, right? Because there are positive things to tell you about, right? The And you tweeted about this, that it made it. You were talking about the National Defense Authorization Act, which, of course, is long for NDAA. And something that made it in is something you've written about a lot, right? This deal with psychedelics, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the NDAA is like in a partisan, you know, garbage pit that is Congress. <laughs> the NDAA is the one moment where like actually Republicans and Democrats generally do come together. Like they're right. still they got to do stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's still, you know, people who don't like it, but this is the point where like you get to give pay raises to soldiers, you get to like, you know, build a new barracks in, you know, Fort Cavazos, you get to mm-hmm. get an airport, you know, uh, or an uh, uh, aircraft carriers landed in a particular base or it's all good stuff, right? And so yeah. but Within that, you know, you know, talk about a major shift. You know, U.S. Representative Dan Crenshaw from Houston, mm-hmm. a yeah. veteran himself, had been fighting for you know since he got into Congress to kind of get the um, uh, the Defense Department to allow more clinical studies of uh, psychedelics as a, a treatment for PTSD. You know, there's some international treatments and studies that have shown some positive effects, but we can't study it here in the United States mm-hmm. because guess what? Nancy Reagan said, <laughs> just say no. Right. <laughs> and our Congress just says no every time it happens. And so even when Crenshaw and uh, his co-partner, I can't believe we're saying this, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they worked together for the last couple of years to get this legislation going, and each time it would die in the Texas in, in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. But this yeah. year, they actually found some success. Right. Here they were earlier this year talking about it. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. We're very excited to be here. Thank you uh, to my colleagues, Representative Crenshaw and Representative Correa. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she, ta- she was talking about um, how back in 2019... Uh, there was this bill to study this, and it failed miserably, Jeremy. The vote wasn't close at all, but at this news conference, uh, AOC talked about how it was kind of a good thing that it failed because then a lot more people got involved. After that vote failed, many people across the country gathered and rallied and started to organize and contact their members of Congress. And offices were bombarded by phone calls and letters from veterans who knew how important studying these drugs were for addressing PTSD and supporting mental health treatment. And as you pointed out, Jeremy, it's not every day that you see Dan Crenshaw thanking AOC for her leadership. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you for your leadership on this and and, and bipartisanship. This is a really wild coalition, okay? You've got a You've got extremely conservative Republicans, moderate Republicans. You've got extremely progressive Democrats, moderate Democrats. Everybody's on the same page because there's a realization that these therapies are working. Uh, There's already some pretty solid studies specifically on MDMA that show uh, just unbelievable outcomes, a massive reduction in PTSD symptoms. We need to keep replicating those studies. There's other drugs that show incredible promise I was turned on to this issue because I had so many friends, either current or former service members, who were going down to a specific clinic and doing Ibogaine, 
one treatment of Ibogaine uh, would cure them. Cure them of addiction, cure them of the, their inner demons, their PTSD. They were balanced afterwards. And they, it was described to me more and more by, by people I really knew well and who I knew had, had seen trauma. And I said, we, we have to do something about this. We have to look at this more, research it the proper way, go through the proper FDA uh, clinical trial uh, studies. And that, that's, that's, how this was, that's how this was born. I think it's fair to say that progressives, if, you, if that's what you want to call them, more liberal members, that they were kind of in this place already. And then you reach some critical mass of those who would describe themselves as conservatives getting to the same place that the liberals were at. Is that right? So, so one of the key players in all that, as you remember, was former Governor Rick Perry, who had been pushing for this as well. Here he was on News Nation about six months ago. Somebody said, Perry, what are you doing this for? You, you spent 40 years of your life building a reputation. And uh, number one, I've studied it. I know what is going on here, I think, with a fairly good uh, amount of information. But here's what's most important to me. My reputation is not, not more important than these young men's lives. And uh, I'm willing to stand up. Uh, we passed legislation in Texas two years ago allowing for clinical trials on psilocybin. Uh, I think that was the right thing to do, and uh, these young men deserve it. It's uh, men and women, by the way, Governor. But uh, but 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 point being, Jeremy, uh, that if folks are willing to push long and hard enough on something, and sometimes and this, you know, I think some of the folks who are very disappointed about where we are with abortion restrictions could also take this to heart. At some point, it's the backlash to a certain something that causes the positive thing to happen. And that happens all the time in the United, the history of the United States and the world is there are these swings toward the left or the right or toward, you know, injustice or injustice or whatever. Um, as, as, uh, AOC said there, you know, they were just trying to do something that they thought made sense just to just, as they would say, as conservatives and liberals now are saying, it's just a common sense thing. But at the time it was sort of rejected by the vast majority who thought we can't even touch that. We can't even go there. And they see a certain result and all of a sudden people are pissed and they go, well, why, why aren't people seeing my way on this? Oh, guess what? It's because a lot of you didn't get involved in the process before. And now that you are, those in charge are taking note. Yeah. And it's really interesting. One of the things that you know, Dan Crenshaw has spoken to me about is like, and he, you heard it a little bit in his clip there, uh, like it's not just that there were veterans going overseas to go get you know the treatments that aren't allowed here in the, in this country and getting positive results that was definitely happening but there's an extra component to that that he mentioned that is I think is much more seriously concerning which is you had active duty members of the military who are dealing with PTSD who are also having to go to places in say Mexico or other countries to get these, you know, these medications, right? It's like, that's what they are ultimately in the end. And, and what does that, you know, the, the potential of tragedy happening there where you have like a member of the active duty United States military not in the country and, and not, you know, have, not able to even tell his commanding officers where he's 
going to be sets up all kinds of dangers that we just don't want to get into as a nation, right? And so you had all that jeopardy happening. And one of the things you'll, you heard from AOC and something that she's repeated a couple of times is like, look, this is, this is a starting point. You know, get the Pentagon to study this, to see if it really does help these men and women in the military and the veterans, right? And if that starts to show some progress, then you're able to kind of expand that out into the rest of the nation to other people who are suffering PTSD. She specifically talked about, you know, women who are the victims of violent crime, uh, uh, maybe being able to get access to, you know, these types of therapies to help them overcome you know, what they've been through, right? You know, it's like, so you can see there's a future in all of this that we haven't even been allowed to even ask, like, could this help? You were just shushed out of the room. Yeah. Like, you know, you just, there's a, a group of people just, no, it's a drug, bad, no, can't do it. But what happens if this thing that we're talking about is so much better than any opioid that y- you never want to be on? Right. You know, it's like the opioids are the things that are driving this nation, you know, in, into these death rates that we're having. The whole. Well, you know, yeah. The, I mean, it was that's what Donald Trump in part rode to the presidency on that. Yeah. And, and, it's and, such a crisis in the in the Midwest. Yeah. And you have all uh, you know, particularly on the right. There's so many people talking about fentanyl. You know, it's like guess where that fentanyl is showing up. It's being laced in opioids. That is where that's what's killing people because they don't know they're taking fentanyl in the opioids that we have addicted this country to, right? You know, so I don't mean I sound like I'm a, a pharmaceutical anti-pharmaceutical uh, lobbyist myself, but no, seriously, there's this situation where you just like at some point, like let's at least study this mm-hmm. stuff to see if it is as effective or more effective than the opioids that are now pretty much one of the only therapies that are being offered to these veterans and these soldiers. And so like, there's got to be another way, you know, it's like, we've got to be a way to kind of maybe, you know, deal with this issue in a more of adult way, right? Like see if this works in a, in a testing environment that's run by the federal government, Mm -hmm. real tests, real laboratories, you know, not some, you know, crazy, (laughs) like, you know, Azerbaijan study on the back of a napkin somewhere, but literally, you know, being done under the watchful eye of true scientists to show, is this our solution to a problem that has been around, you know, America for a long time? Well, some glimmer of hope. Uh, And I think that's a good place to leave it as we exit 2023 on the show and uh wish everybody a happy holiday season i there was one year jeremy years ago it was about 10 years ago i was doing a radio show in dallas and i had wished people happy holidays and i had this bitter angry old man call into the radio station (laughs) and say you have no idea how offensive that is to say happy holidays I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's Merry Christmas. And I said, well, then Merry Christmas, man. I mean, either, who cares? You know, not everybody celebrates Christmas. Actually, I used the, we were off the air, so I used the F word. <laughs> I said, Merry effing Christmas. You know what? I'm, I love Christmas. It's one, but I don't need you telling me that I can't say happy holidays because not everybody celebrates Christmas. You know, I said, Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a happy new year. This is why Charlie Brown looks so depressed in that in that Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs>
You know, he goes around the whole, he goes around the entire, I watched it again last night. I may watch Charlie Brown Christmas every night until Christmas now. Because, <laughs> perfect. Well, well, because he starts out so depressed and then they figure out what Christmas is all about. It's, it's about great. little they, tiny trees that your dog And they dress has. up that tree <laughs> and they dress up that tree and it looks great. No, listen, at, what, however you celebrate, whatever you do, we, we, wanna, we want to wish you happy holidays here. And that's it. We will not be back um, for another podcast until the first. We'll plan on one the first week of January. Otherwise, I hope people can, you know, take some time, chill, maybe, maybe listen to this show. This this is our last show of the year, and then don't think about politics for a few days. Spend some time with your family. Now, if you want to cut things short, go ahead and bring up politics at the Christmas. With your family. That sounds great. You've already missed out on this tip, Jeremy. If you if you bring up politics at Thanksgiving dinner, it saves you money on Christmas gifts later. Did you know that? There, <laughs> there's, I see how people, that works. <laughs> yep. You already missed out on that. So just remember that for, for next year. Uh, Evan Scherer, who came on board this year, our fantastic producer. I appreciate all your work, sir. Jeremy's newsletter, of course, you can check out on his X page, it's the top post there. He's got it pinned at the top. You can click the link, sign up for his newsletter. Uh, and of course, you should be a subscriber at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. And we'll see you in 2024.